I'm grateful to have the uh, opportunity to preach um, the day after Christmas, and I'm glad you're all here. If you have your Bibles, please turn them, open them to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be reading verse 26 to 38. This is a f- pretty familiar story. We've all heard it around this time of year, um, but it's always good to be refreshed and to see again the wonder of the incarnation of God coming to dwell among us. Start in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this thing and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How shall this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Almighty Father, we praise you for the incarnation. Praise you that you were made man a little lower than the angels so that we might become partakers of a divine inheritance. We thank you that you are good to us, that you have revealed to us your word, and we pray that you would speak to us through it today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been taken by surprise, or have you, have you ever thought that you knew what the ending of something was? In Christmas time, a lot of us are familiar with presents, with um, you know that excitement that goes throughout the month. And then finally, we get to open the presents. It's a little less exciting for me now. Um, it's because it's more fun to see it on my kids' faces. Um, but when I was a kid, as a lot of other kids do, I tried to guess what my presents were. And that was almost worse than just waiting. Because occasionally you would guess a present and you would be wrong. I know that's hard to believe that... <laughs> But I was occasionally wrong, and then you open it, and you have to fake that you're happy (laughs) with what you got. (laughs) Well, um, needless to say, sometimes we think we know the end of the story, we think we know the ending, and how it's going to all play out, but we don't. And we come to a point in Luke where a lot of the people of Israel thought they knew how it was going to end. They were waiting 
They were the chosen people of God. God had covenanted with their father Abraham. They had been catechized with this their whole lives. They have been told this. And they thought, I know how this is going to end. We're just, and the different, the various sects, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and all the other ones, they all took different approaches on how that they were going to work with God's sovereignty to bring about this ending. But they didn't have God figured out. In the book of Luke, we come to the opening scenes of a play that God is just beginning to unfold before them. Luke 1 through 2, if you look at it, you can think of it in terms of a play. You see these announcements. They echo one another. You have the opening scene comes to a, to a priest, to an old priest serving incense in the temple, whose wife had been barren for ages, and who every time that his turn came or he offered incense, he likely prayed for the people and prayed for a child at the same time, and for years had not had, not had that, that answered. Only to suddenly appear in his old age in something that probably recounts the story of Abraham in his mind. An angel coming to tell him that his old wife is pregnant, is, has born in her old age, will bear a child. Needless to say, this takes him by surprise. He says, well, I need to see a sign. Would you give me a sign? And to Zechariah's surprise, to his, and probably also to his dismay, the angel gives him a sign, but it's his deafness, his muteness, until the child was to be born. That's the sign that his child, that his wife, be there, was pregnant. The curtain of the second scene, we see an unknown woman a virgin. You see, in an unknown town, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. This is where we find ourselves in the scripture. We find ourselves in a play that we don't know how it's going to end. We thought it would end differently, but it's taking a different turn than we had anticipated. Luke's intentions are a couple are twofold, at least twofold with this. First, he's, if you read the first four verses of Luke chapter 1, he's compiling an orderly narrative. He wants to tell you everything that happens. He says in verse 1, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, uh, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So in other words, a lot of people have told this story before. I followed it closely, I've investigated it, and I want to set out an orderly narrative for you. So you see the, the scenes opening. But he's also trying these two stories of the birth of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist being foretold and going through those are being put side by side to highlight the superiority and glory of our own Savior's birth. From the beginning of its announcement, Mary ultimately to his birth, 
the Lord's birth, his incarnation, is utterly insurpassable. The day spring from on high has visited us, as we'll later see in one of the songs. Luke's account of the visitation of Mary highlights the intervention of a holy God to save his people in a way they hadn't guessed. We begin our story. Um, I'm going to take approach this a little differently, just to exposit the text and then highlight a few themes of the story afterwards. Um, we begin our story in Luke 1.26. We're told that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, the sixth month is comparing, um, is putting it with Elizabeth's birth. Elizabeth's pregnant. She's six months pregnant. And so Luke's drawing your attention back to the previous story. But we're also told we don't know much about Mary. Luke doesn't go about explaining who Mary is or even where she lives. As a matter of fact, Nazareth is so unknown that the, Luke has to say to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. People aren't that familiar with Nazareth. It's a, it's a tiny town that nobody knew, that people didn't, really didn't know much about. Um, and we're introduced to the character Gabriel. Part of Luke's, as I pointed out a little bit, or just a couple sentences ago, as I pointed out earlier, the announcement of Mary's birth is meant to be compared and contrasted with the announcement of Zechariah's birth, of uh, John the Baptist's birth. We both have angelic announcements, but we see a contrast. We move from a public temple, a loud, boisterous temple, to a more private sphere, a woman who's not known. Luke 1.25 tells us that Elizabeth had kept herself hidden for five months. Uh, 24 and 25, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take my reproach from among my people. So the sixth month is tying it back to that. We also meet an, an angel, Gabriel. The angel Gabriel was sent from God. Now before Luke, Gabriel had had two, a couple other appearances in the Old Testament. A couple of intertestamental in the intertestamental period, but both times Gabriel appeared to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8 and again in Daniel chapter 9. And both times we're dealing with messianic prophecies and the angel was explaining things to Daniel. So, um, the angel Gabriel was frequently associated with messianic announcements, with messianic prophecies. Um, have you ever seen people that you've associated with something? My old pastor growing up used to call all the kids and ask them who the best pastor in the world was. And then, if we got the answer right, which was him, of course, uh, we, would, we got a piece of chocolate. So naturally, we associated that question with candy after the service. Um, this is an idea for John, if he's listening. Uh, 
Well, the angel Gabriel was associated with messianic announcements. People associated him with great proclamations. The time for them had come. Now, Mary is startled at his appearance. And those of us who have seen the biblically accurate angels things on Facebook or social media, he probably doesn't look like that. Uh, in Daniel, we're told that he's referred to as the man Gabriel. So she's startled for good reason, but not necessarily because he looks freakish, most likely. I mean, I wasn't there, so I'm speculating a little bit, but I, he's appearing as a man. Um, albeit one with extravagant, um, ex- some extraordinary, like you could tell he's not... He was startling enough just appearing in her, in her living room. Um, but he appears to a virgin betrothed to Joseph. And this tells us that Mary was not, not a very well-known girl. Um, she, we're told that she's a virgin twice, and this is to highlight the later extraordinary features of what the angel Gabriel is going to announce to her. Um, betrothal in that period was a lot more serious as um, we may have heard, we live in an age where marriage is almost seen as contractual, where if my wife doesn't live up to the bargain, you can just cut her off. That's the unfortunate age in which we live. Um, however, in this period, betrothal was a serious matter. Um, Deuteronomy 22, 23 and 24, in, the, um, in some of the laws concerning sexual immorality, refers to a man who takes a betrothed woman as taking his neighbor's wife. So she's already considered to be his wife by Deuteronomic law. By law, she is his wife, even though it hasn't been fully consummated yet. And for the same reason, you see later, you see the Matthew account of Joseph, where Joseph is going to put her away quietly because naturally they're... Um, aren't very many explanations to why a virgin woman would conceive and bear a child. And Gabriel appears and says, Greetings, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. This is an unusual greeting. Even before in Zechariah, if you look over at... um, If you look over in verse 12... Or 13, sorry. He says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. There's a contrast here because Zechariah had prayed for years for his barren wife. However, Mary had not been praying for a child, most likely. She, Gabriel just appears to her and says, Greetings, highly favored one. And so this is surprising from at least two levels. First, because her becoming pregnant, becoming with child would be a scandalous thing. It's not a highly favor, favorable thing, at least in that time period. Um, and it's an entirely unknown, entirely unexpected. Mary's was wholly anticipated. From the language, we read in verse um, 28, when he says, and he came to her, it seems um, the language there implies he's coming into something. He's coming into a house. It, Mary, it suggests that Mary was in her home. 
This is itself remarkable because Mary would have only spent time really with men who were related to her before she was married. She wouldn't have spent a lot of time outside or um, out with other, other people. And so the sudden appearance of a man, of an angelic being of a man, would have been scandalous, would have possibly suggested to be scandalous. And further, the greeting itself is highly unusual. The word, um, the oh, oh, favored one is only used, the verbal form is only used in one other place, and that's in Ephesians 1, where it refers to Ephesians 1 and verse 6, where we are told that we are made acceptable. It's the only other place where that word is used in the New Testament. Um, thus, the inference here is that she is the recipient of great grace, of great favor from the Lord, solely at the Lord's initiative. She didn't pray for this. She didn't expect this. No one expected this. But she has received great grace. Um, you may be familiar with the Vulgate translation of this, which goes something like Ave Maria Gratia Plena, <laughs> for those of you who have heard the song, especially around Christmas time, um, meaning that she is full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. That's, it's quoting, it's attempting to translate this passage. However, contra the Catholic view, Mary, I think, received grace similar to what we find in Noah in Genesis 6. Noah found favor before God. It's nothing inherent in his own disposition, in his own thing, but it's solely because of God's great grace. Now, as Protestants, we want to avoid the problem of holding a Catholic view of Mary, but also avoid that saying that Mary has nothing noteworthy, because she is. She is held up as a person to emulate here. And later on, Mary herself in the Magnificat says, generations will call me blessed. And she, so she has received great blessing from the Lord. She has been the recipient of great favor, both in her humble submission and in just the privilege it was for her to bury God incarnate. But I think this ought to be comfort for us. We see Mary, who is not famous, not, not well known, has nothing to commend herself. And today we see so many people that are trying to be famous, trying to be influencers. Um, I want to be well known. I want to be widely accepted. We have a widely available array of pastors and teachers to select from. We can hear almost any message. Thanks to COVID, you can hear almost anything live streamed, so you don't even really have to go out of your house. Um, where before that may not have happened as frequently. Yet most of us will never be known beyond our immediate posterity. Most, If you think about the amount of people you know in history over the past 1,000, 2,000 years, it's very few compared to the amount of people that have actually lived. So how can we take com great comfort from that? God uses the weak things to confound the wise. God uses the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And this ought to be a reality check for us that God doesn't need our fame, 
our fortune, our ability, our intelligence, or whatever it is you think you have to bring to the table. God doesn't need any of that. Um, the most extraordinary thing most of us can do is raise godly families in a godly church and attend the local church pastored by a local pastor. And I think we overlook that God tends to use the natural means through his powerful working of his spirit through his people. And I think Mary can also be an example for us in that regard. Now, naturally, Gabriel then states, the Lord is with you. And this call reflects passages of of a calling similar to Gideon or someone like um, who's called for a specific mission. Mary is simply told that she's highly favored and the Lord is with her. Now, what is Mary's response? She's a strange man who seems angelic. Tells her she's highly favored, the Lord is with her. Naturally, her response is, the ESV says that she is um, greatly troubled at the saying and discerned what sort of greeting this might be. She's confused. She's perplexed. She doesn't know why. He's just said, oh, greetings, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Um, the word there for fear is one of the stronger words for fear, which is ironic because the people with less faith faith than Mary, like Zechariah or Herod in another place, respond with a word that is less, they're a little bit less afraid. So Mary is more aware and more more fearful at what is actually happening. What kind of greeting is this? Have you ever said something to a kid and you could see the wheels turning that they didn't understand what you said? I do it all the time, sometimes just for fun, but sometimes, uh, (laughs) but sometimes I use a phrase that I realize, oh, they're not really sure what this means, and so they're trying to, that's the response that Mary is giving. She's not, she doesn't say anything. It just says, uh, she, she was greatly troubled and tried to discern, but the angel immediately says, do not be afraid, Mary. So he can see the wheels turning. He can see confusion, the fear. And so the angel attempts to alleviate her fears in verses 30 to 33. And most of the time in angelic encounters, you can see through the Christmas story, there's fear. There's great fear on the part of the people encountering them. And then they're usually told not to be afraid, which at that point, you're a little little past. (laughs) Um, But... She's told not to be afraid. And that you, she is further told again, that you have found favor with God. This expression is common in the Old Testament and usually refers to the generous ex- expressal of favor towards someone who doesn't necessarily deserve it. They're not, it's not necessarily a negative thing, like you have found favor in, your eyes, in my eyes despite what you have done. But it's usually just a, you have done nothing noteworthy, but you, or you have found favor in my eyes, sort of a sense. How has she found favor? 31 through 33 detail what the angels mean. She is first told that she will conceive in her womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. At first glance, this doesn't seem like she is a recipient of favor. 
Um, we are, as I said earlier, we are hard to fully grasp this because we live in an era of pretty free living. It's not uncommon to see um, women out of childbearing, um, becoming pregnant, children out of wedlock. However, the, her society in this time would have not have looked kindly on this at all. As Joseph's response, Joseph is considered righteous, and his response indicates. This doesn't seem like she has received favor. So the angel goes on and continues, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel's responses contains various allusions and hints to the Old Testament, to some of the prophecies that they had been looking for. They had been anticipating, albeit in a different manner than they were apparently receiving it. The obvious initial one is Isaiah 7.14, where we are told a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Another and unusual thing about this commissioning is Mary is told what she would call the child. This wasn't very, also wasn't very common in their society. The woman was not the namer of the child. The man was. Obviously, if you read Matthew 1, Joseph is also told this. So they're both told what they would call, call his name. Why? Because he would save his people from their sins. That's why his name would be called Jesus. His name is associated with his action. You occasionally see this kind of thing in the Old Testament, although often it's a negative sense, such as uh, Nabal, whose name means fool. It's a bad name to live up to. Um, you get a few of those thing, things that happen in the Old Testament, or if you've ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress, you can kind of guess the person's characteristics based off their name. Oh, Mr. Worldly Wise, I wonder what your character traits are. Uh, <laughs> Jesus' name, however, is one which means salvation or the Lord saves. Because he will save his people from their sin. This saving message is the essence of Jesus coming to earth. Now, salvation in their sense, sometimes they assume that it would be to throw off the yoke. To throw off people that are over them. They would be their own people. The Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, you find chronicles at the very end, which ends with the decree of Cyrus to enter the land. And so if you're reading your Bible back then, the last thing you read is about Cyrus telling them that they can all enter the land. But they're still waiting for their final salvation. But Jesus' saving mission is a little bit different though it overlaps with aspects of this. We are told that Jesus would be great. This is contrasted with John's greatness in Luke 1.15, where John is called great before God. Luke 1.15, where he says, He will be great before the Lord. And then it goes on with his requirements. However, Jesus is just great, without qualification, without any, oh, before us, before the Lord. He is called great, and that he will be the Son of the Most High. 
The son of the Most High is an epithet only elsewhere used with Melchizedek in Hebrew 7 and Genesis 14 where he's described as being the priest of the Most High. It's also used with um, in Isaiah, a similar phrase is used where it refers to the Lord who is high and lifted up referring to the Lord's majesty and sovereignty. So that Jesus as the Son of the Most High is associating with these very characteristics. The Son of something was associating with the characteristics. Jesus uses the same thing when he tells the Pharisees that they're like the Father, the devil. (laughs) However, Jesus is described as the Son of the Most High. He carries the exact characteristics of God. He is told, Mary is also told that he would give to him the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. These are overlapping phenomenon. The Davidic kingdom is promised to be eternal back in 2 Samuel 7. We read, if you're reading 2 Samuel 7, David says, Lord, I want to build you a house. God says, no, you can't. I mean, not exactly, but sort of. But I will build you a house. Referring to his dynasty, his people. The long-awaited hope of Israel was at last coming. They had waited for 400 years of silence. They had been through periods where in the past they'd been told these stories, they'd been catechized, they'd been reminded of their history, where they would not exist as a people apart from God's divine intervention through the Exodus to take them out of the land. And God is clear in Deuteronomy that it's not because of their might, or because you were stronger, or because of any other characteristics, but because I loved you. So they know that it's only because of God's divine intervention, did they even exist as a people? And they had been waiting and hoping for this for so long. And this is the promised one to whom Mary is with child. Mary responds. She's still confused and responds with a natural question. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? This is not a question of doubt. It's not a question of, well, I need you to give me a sign. It's a natural response to being told that she was with child. She is accepting at face value what Gabriel has told her. You are going to be with child. She's not saying, will I really? She's saying, how will I be with child since I don't know any? I'm not with the man. What is she told? She's told the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The word overshadowing is used in Exodus 40 to refer to the the tabernacle. 
overshadows the tabernacle and we see divine glory, the glory entering into the tabernacle. Later on, John 1 refers to Christ coming to live with us as tabernacling, pitched a tent and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God. Mary had the privilege of bearing in her womb the incarnate glory of God. Perhaps the line from Hark the Herald Angels Sing states it best by stating, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. The great privilege we have is that any incarnation we see the glory of God among us. We have Emmanuel, God with us. This tabernacle was the meeting place of man, God, but specifically the mediator of the people. In Jesus, we have a meeting place between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who serves as our great high priest and is ruling and reigning and subjecting all things under his feet. What is Mary's response to all this? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I am a lowly servant. The word servant, the idea of slave. I am just doing what you've commanded me to do. I am doing what you have promised to me. No fighting, just humble submission before God and God's announcer. Now, a couple of themes in transitioning. There's a couple of themes, I think, throughout this. We first see the superiority of the incarnation. Jesus' birth is utterly unique and manifests divine glory. You ha we have comparisons that Luke draws with the announcement of John's birth to that of Jesus' birth. But we see precedent in the Old Testament for the aged barren woman to bear a son. Have Abraham's wife, Sarah. These are difficult circumstances. These are unusual circumstances, but not ones that are impossible at face value. We never before see and we never again see a virgin conceiving and bearing a son. This is utterly unique and puts it on a completely different plane to what we have seen before. Jesus' birth also is not a response to the prayer, like Zechariah's was a response to his prayer in a sense. But it's solely the prerogative of God. We were told sometimes that reality is stranger than fiction. And here in the Christmas season, we can rejoice that the glorious incarnation is not something that mere man could have dreamt up. We could not have just come up with this. It was God. And in this Christmas season, let us rejoice in that. It's one of the best things I think about all the songs and the Christmas hymns is just rejoicing in the fact of the incarnation that God has come to dwell with us. We can be his people and he 
is our God. A second theme is the sovereignty of God. I mentioned it earlier in Exodus, the Exodus 37 reading. goes over the sovereignty of God. Now here, Mary finds favor. But this favor isn't something inherent in her. It's not something, as I've said before, it's not something that she's, though she is a virtuous woman, it's not based on her virtue. God is in control and does what he pleases. And in the incarnation with Mary, we see that she is a recipient of great favor. She has the privilege of bearing the incarnate God. We too are favored ones. In Ephesians 1, as we've read before, we have been recipients of great grace. All of us who have repented and turned to Jesus are recipients of great favor, not based off merit, but by the will of God. If you are not, if you do not believe in Jesus, I would urge you to turn to him and repent. A third theme, which is kind of related to the sovereignty, is the impossible made possible. Um, picture the setting here. 400 years of silence. People eagerly anticipating God's salvation and kingdom. They had returned to the land, but they didn't really have their independence. They were constantly underneath other people, occasionally throw it off, come back underneath others. Now fast forward to this time period. Mary's a nobody. We're only told who she is based off her relation to Elizabeth. And the word there just means kin. We are told she is a kin of Elizabeth. We're told she is a betrothed virgin to Joseph. But beyond that, we're not really told much. We assume she's poor based off of later, later reading of Scripture. Yet God comes, God incarnate comes to her. The infinite enters into finitude. The one who made the stars and stretched them out enters into a virgin's womb. The one who we say is of himself, who has life of himself, came to be dependent upon his mother. It's a mystery. The one with no beginning enters into time and space. It's a mystery that the undying one enters into life only to experience a scandalous death. Yet in our place condemned he stood. The impossible, what we would think is impossible in the ways that we would dream it up, through Christ is made possible. Finally, we have humble submission. Mary is worthy of great honor. We are told later that generations will call me blessed. But despite the difficulties attendant to a young virgin who had come with child in that society, 
she submits to the Lord's humble service. Look again at that last verse in verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. God does not need strong men. God does not need strong people. He does not need intelligent people. He does not need wise people. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. What do you have that you did not receive? I think these questions we can ask ourselves. What does the Lord require of us? Obey Him and do His commands. Do what you know He is commanding you to do. Raise your families in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Work not as for men, but for God. All that you do, whether eating or drinking, do it for the glory of God. See, the, these are the things that God requires of us. And so this Christmas season, let us humbly submit to his will and all throughout the next year. Oftentimes, the end of the year is a time where we take an assessment of our lives. Let us submit to him and echo with Mary that we are the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let us rejoice in our Emmanuel who lives with us and by whose death we might never die and are made partakers of a divine inheritance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glories of the incarnation that you have come to dwell with us. We pray that you would help us to submit our lives and our wills to you, that we might do what you command us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.